Welcome to Cato Audio for December 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, I speak with Cato's Tommy Berry and Andy Craig about the forthcoming reform to the Electoral Count Act and how that reform may well prevent another January 6th type event. Cato's Center for Educational Freedom surveys its 20 years of existence and the massive changes in the educational landscape in that time. And for our Cato Audio exclusive, Ted Galen Carpenter and I discuss how the media, with respect to foreign policy and war, are unreliable watchdogs. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. We are speaking, uh, we are recording this, rather, on Election Day of 2022. And because this is a midterm election, thank goodness we do not have to contend with the cryptic text uh, and less than totally clear meaning of what's known as the Electoral Count Act. Uh, And thankfully, due uh, because of some work of the two people I'm speaking with today, the Electoral Count Act is due for some reform. I'm speaking with Tommy Berry, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, and Andy Craig, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. You both have done yeoman's work clarifying uh, what the Electoral Count Act is, its history, uh, why it is vague, and uh, how it ought to be reformed so that we do not have a repeat performance of what we saw in early 2021 uh, as a reaction to less than totally clear rules about how a president is selected uh, under our electoral college system. So, uh, Andy, if you don't mind, I want to start with you. Um, I guess, what was your initial reaction to the fallout from the election of 2020? Was Did you expect in a close election that this we would have so much, shall we say, noise, even if it's statistical noise, about uh, who actually won the election? There was definitely some uh, building up to this in prior elections before 2020. There had been objections raised uh, after the 2000 election, after the 2004 election, after the 2016 election. All of those were Democrats. Uh, So there had been a little bit more attention Um, But for the most part, we had not seen anything like all of this focus on the joint session of Congress where they count electoral votes. There had never been a serious push to try to throw out votes that got nearly as much support as it did, even aside from what happened with the riot. To have that many members of Congress uh, support an objection was unusual. And and just refresh my memory, at least, uh, the closest we ever got to something similar, uh, at least in recent memory, was 2000. Uh, the, actually, the only time it wasn't 2000, it was 2004 when uh, Barbara Boxer, they managed to get a Senate co-sponsor. So that's when they actually did the thing where they have to go back to the House and Senate and debate and vote um, in 2000. And after 2016, it was only ever House members doing it. So even under the Electoral Count Act, as it stands now, those got gobbled down. They didn't actually get debated and voted on. All right, Tommy, what is the confusion? Where can people, at least uh, at a at a uh, the prima facie level, be able to say, yeah, this we should be we should be able to challenge the outcome of the election uh, based upon how this law is written. 
Well, one of the biggest issues was the language from when this bill was originally passed back in the late 1800s. Um, instead of spelling out the particular what's inbounds and what's out of bounds for a congressional challenge to an electoral vote, uh, they used two pretty broad terms. Uh, they said you can challenge it for not being regularly given or if the uh, appointment of an elector was not lawfully certified. And historians and, and law professors have done great work going back to that time period um, and kind of unearthing what those terms of art meant. Um, but at least on their face, they're not necessarily obvious to members of Congress or the general public. So when some members of Congress claimed that those uh, grounds for objection could encompass essentially relitigating the conduct of the general election, second-guessing court decisions which said there wasn't any uh, outcome-altering uh, irregularities, um, and you can understand why they were able to convince a, a significant number of people that that's a legitimate use of the statute. And uh, what are the, you know, it seems like reform happened pretty late considering that Congress was the victim of this assault on January 6th. It seems like uh, Congress would want to leap into action to reform this law to make sure that events like this uh, don't happen again. Andy? Well, part of what happened is that initially uh, in 2021, for most of uh, last year, there was a Democratic desire to pass broader voting rights legislation, um, the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that had a lot of stuff in it that was never going to get Republican support, never really had any shot at getting uh, over a filibuster in the Senate. But they spent a lot of time on that, and it was only after that kind of died that you had the bipartisan uh, group of senators come together, led by Susan Collins and Joe Manchin, to hammer out something that's actually passable. And that's what's been going on this year and is expected to pass uh, in the lame duck session after the election. All right. Um, well, uh, I guess you can understand some of the politics uh, for uh, Democrats in wanting to push stuff that they can't get Republican support for that might actually might have actually enhanced their chances of uh, increased incumbency, but it's pretty dangerous to uh, not go for the uh, more obvious solution to prevent the kind of uh, violence that we saw on January 6th. Absolutely. It would have been, it should have been at the top of the agenda after January 6th. And uh, even though folks are feeling pretty comfortable that it's going to pass. It's certainly not the the best practice to push this very important thing to, you know, pretty much literally the last minute uh, before this Congress expires. Uh, Tommy, one of the big points that you made to me uh, as, a, as a related matter was that as people start indicating that they're going to be running for president, uh, that for a lot of lawmakers, what otherwise would be a situation in which they say, yes, I like this 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 law. I like this reform. Uh, let's pass it. Uh, suddenly, they become a little more situational in their support for what they would otherwise consider to be a good law. So we're sort of late in the game, but not too late. It looks like. Hopefully, not too late. Uh, that's that's exactly right. That. Uh, behind the veil of ignorance, almost everybody can agree that uh, these reforms make sense. And indeed, in the long run, you really don't know which party is going to benefit 
uh, probably both parties are going to be in a position where the opposing party controls the White House and the vice presidency and perhaps a majority of Congress, and and they don't want an election to be taken away from them by shenanigans in Congress. Um, but when you get down to particulars, especially the elephant in the room being Donald Trump and his uh, all of his theories of uh, election fraud in, in 2020 that really spurred um, this movement in Congress, um, it becomes a lot more difficult politically, unfortunately, for some people to support Electoral Count Act reform. And uh, we shall see if, if rumors are true that Trump may be announcing uh, shortly after the this midterm election being held today, um, we shall see whether that changes the political calculus um, for members of Congress if, if there is a vote in the lame duck. Now, now maybe I should have mentioned this up front. Uh, we got this law for a particular set of circumstances that occurred in uh, the 1800s. Andy, if you wouldn't mind, detail uh, what those circumstances were. Sure. It was the 1876 election uh, between Hayes, the Republican, and Tilden, the Democrat. Um, and this was coming at the tail end of Reconstruction after the Civil War. There were several states where there were multiple people claiming to be the real governor of the state, claiming to be the real uh, legislature and relevant officials. Um, there were a lot of really nasty disputes. Uh, so ultimately, there were 20 votes that were uh, contested, and those were enough to decide the outcome. Uh, it came to Congress. Uh, the constitutional text on this stuff is very sparse, doesn't cover a lot of detail. So they threw together an ad hoc commission uh, that only managed to sort it out and get a final result certified a couple of days before Inauguration Day. Um, and it very nearly reignited the Civil War, basically. Um, so everybody agreed that was not the way to do things going forward. And it was after that that the current Electoral Count Act was uh, eventually drafted and passed. Uh, Tommy, was there at the time, was there a confusion about what the terms meant when they were passing this law? Or did everybody seem to understand it well, even if we don't exactly understand it clearly today? I think there was perhaps some confusion, but not nearly as much as as we have today, in large part because they had many more examples in the recent past of attempted objections. Even before the Electoral Count Act became passed into law as a statute, Congress had various good-for-one-election-only resolutions that kind of uh, uh, foreshadowed the Electoral Count Act, somewhat similar procedures. And so you had objections, for example, you had states that were just gaining statehood right around the time of an election season, for example. And so sometimes you had controversies about whether they became a state soon enough. You had controversies about whether a southern state had been readmitted soon enough to take part in an election. Um, so you had had more of the controversies than you do today. Um, and in, in large part, you had controversies that are extremely unlikely to happen today. And really, those are the only ones that the Electoral Count Act was understood to, to encompass. It's extremely unlikely today that we would see the kind of uh, controversy or the kind of uncertainty that would actually trigger a, a valid objection under the, the terms of the Electoral Count Act. All right. Uh, I want to commend uh, both of you and also our colleague, Walter Olson, who uh, was not able to join us today uh, on the work that you have done sort of, uh, again, tirelessly explaining why this reform was needed and why it uh, is so critical to preventing the kinds of uh, disputes that we might see, uh, we might that we did see uh, on on and after the election 
in uh, 2020. What was the what was the strategy? I mean, what were what were you guys thinking in terms of tr- trying to make the case? And of course, the the people to whom you need to make the case are, of course, members of Congress. But uh, what were you thinking in the in the in the decision to uh, make the case for this reform? Well. One of the things going into it uh, was a point that uh, Mitch McConnell had actually made during the uh, January 6th debate uh, when he he talked about how this is really something that should appeal to conservatives and Republicans. This is a matter of uh, being faithful to the Constitution. This is a matter of defending the Electoral College. Um, so there was a lot of principled case to be made there for why this should, uh, and ultimately, as we've seen, it has picked up uh, a lot of Republican support. Um, and the other thing was, uh, I mean, our work at Cato, a lot of it was kind of bridging the gap um, and explaining to Democrats, these are the particular red lines. These are the things, because they're not coming from that same kind of originalist perspective, um, that they were that they were missing that they could have cost them votes. So the, a lot of hammering out the details of the provisions. It was that kind of uh, how can we bridge this gap and and come to an acceptable solution. And luckily, that kind of acceptable solution tracked very well with what we feel is the best constitutional interpretation. Yeah, I, I'd add I'd echo uh, what Andy said, especially about defending the Electoral College. Um, one thing that we we really emphasized was that if you prefer the Electoral College to the push that some are making to move to a nationwide popular vote, you should support reforms that make the Electoral College system uh, rest on more sturdy ground than it currently does. Um, the more people get the impression that the Electoral College system can be easily jerry rigged or uh, you know. Uh, upset or or basically cheated, um, the more likely they are to support a move to just toss the whole thing out, go to a nationwide popular vote. Um, so people who want to retain the system that the framers originally designed for electing a president that that really spreads out uh, the decision to the fifty states in a federalist uh, manner um, should really support a, a framework for supporting that system that's as robust as possible going forward. Andy, I have a a funny story to tell you. Uh, you wrote a piece, I believe it was at the Daily Beast, about uh, a an objection of a particular senator uh, uh, to this reform or pieces of this reform, and I sent it to a friend of mine who I should add is a financial supporter of the Cato Institute, and uh, his response was, "I'm not going to believe what this guy from the Daily Beast says." <laughs> and I thought, well, I thought, well, that's uh, okay. Okay, then you should have read to the bottom where the the guy identifies that he's Andy Craig of the Cato Institute. So uh, that's an aside. The uh, Ted Cruz did raise objections, and as you noted, um, they seem to be all over the place and incoherent and self defeating. Am I putting words in your mouth? That's a fair summary. Um... Ted Cruz was the only senator at the uh, Senate Rules hearing who voted against it, and the reasons he offered were all over the map. Uh, and he was he's the only person I've ever heard point to the 1876 commission we just discussed as a positive example and something we should do again. And uh, Amy Klobuchar gave him some grief for that, too. That was uh, pretty amusing. What, what, what were what were the what was the substance of his claims? I mean, Ted Cruz is not a, a dumb person. Um, is he, he might he might pretend to be sometimes, but 
Uh, he's not stupid. Well, this this went back to what he had been proposing in 2020 uh, or leading up to January 6th, which is that he wanted Congress to have basically a blank check to investigate whatever fraud he thought would happen. He wanted uh, a, a commission to be appointed. Um, and, you know, the contradiction of this is he also was complaining that this is some kind of power grab against the states, that this is this is this is Congress coming in and trying to take powers from the states when, in fact, he was the one arguing for Congress to have the power to overrule decisions that had been made in the states, even though they don't have that constitutional power. This reform now is in uh, moderately different states in the House and Senate, um, and, but it does contain what you got largely what you guys have been advocating. So, uh, Andy, to the extent that you can uh, lay out what is sure to be in the final version of this reform. Sure. Uh, there's a House bill and a Senate bill, um, but they're both very similar. Uh, these one thing they would do is tighten down the list of objections. It would make it clearer that you have to rely on who the states have certified as their appointed electors. It would create a way to litigate those claims through the courts and then for Congress to be bound to those results. So it would go to a three judge panel for an expedited procedure so you can get this all done ahead of time before Congress meets. Um, and then looking at what happened last time, probably the biggest change is it would require uh, in the Senate version, one fifth of each chamber. The House uses one third of each chamber uh, to even have and debate and vote on an objection, as opposed to right now when all it takes is one representative and one senator. And we've seen that's kind of a, an invitation to grandstanding. So it's going to shut all that down. Yeah, I, I would add that uh, raising that threshold is really probably the most important single reform. Um, to some extent, it is disappointing that uh, the Senate bill doesn't add further clarity to those those terms I mentioned, the lawfully uh, certified, the regularly given. But in some ways, raising the threshold uh, will likely achieve a similar result, which is that when you have when you require a significant chunk of both houses uh, to raise an objection, you're hopefully going past uh, the threshold of the amount of people who are willing to make a, a bad faith objection. Uh, and in all likelihood, to actually achieve that threshold, you're going to need uh, a groups of people from both uh, houses who see a legitimate and, and a serious problem uh, with the returns uh, with the electoral votes that were cast. Uh, and so hopefully we're, we're in some ways always reliant on some uh, critical mass of Congress uh, conducting the count in, in good faith. You can't write a bill that will stop every bad faith attempt to overturn it. Uh, but by raising that threshold, you likely have uh, tossed out the possibility of the sort of one or two vote crackpot theory that nonetheless has to go to a vote. How does this change incentives in the states? I, I know that there are a lot of uh, what are termed election deniers, people who believe that the 2020 election was stolen away from uh, Donald Trump. There are a lot of people running for offices, including secretary of state. Uh, you know, a key election official in these states. How do their incentives change? The main thing is that there will be a clear procedure for the federal courts to intervene. And then once the courts have ruled on that, um, even if you have 
Uh, I, I've considered the, the Governor Kim Davis scenario where you just have somebody uh, refusing to sign the piece of paper, even under threat of contempt of court. Uh, this would make clear that the court can just go to somebody else, the chief election administrator or some appropriate state official, say that person's going to issue the certification, and then that court-endorsed version is what goes to Congress. And that is the institutional fact of the matter. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely an improvement on the current version of the Electoral Count Act, which contemplates the possibility of competing returns or dueling returns from a state, sort of the specter of a governor sending in one slate and then the secretary of state disagreeing and sending in the opposite one, and then Congress having to choose between those two. So this the reform bill in the Senate just says, no, that's not even a category. We're not even going to contemplate that. We're going to have one a system for clearly identifying the one valid return from the state. And if necessary, the courts are going to decide what that is, not Congress. You know, jumping back to January 6th for a moment, I don't think it, I'm not sure how uh, most Americans appreciate the degree to which uh, Mike Pence played his role, you know, as admirably as one could. That is, I mean, he called former vice presidents and said, look, how much leeway do I have here? And uh, to a man, they said, none. You have zero leeway. You are a functionary in a process. And if Mike Pence had decided that that was not the case, it's difficult to imagine uh, what might have uh, visited the United States or at least uh, the office of president had he decided to go the other way. Tommy? Yeah. And and unfortunately, under the old version, the, the version of the Electoral Count Act in, in effect at the time, there was some legitimate ambiguity. It said that the vice president as president of the Senate presided over the session, but it didn't really go into detail about what powers come with the power to preside. And this is where this theory that the vice president can, on his own, um, decide which of two competing slates is the correct one came from. Uh, so one of the most important uh, reforms of the Electoral Count Reform Act is that it makes explicit that the vice president's duties as presiding officer are solely ministerial and that he does not have the power to unilaterally decide what's a valid vote, what's not a valid vote, or pick between two competing slates. And so that's going to luckily uh, not put future vice presidents in the terrible position that Vice President Pence was put in of having having the president put that enormous pressure on him and and essentially having to uh, to stand up without having explicit text to point to. I will add to that that there's I do think there is an important ceremonial function of why we have the vice president do this job, though. There had been some discussion of taking the vice president out of it completely because the only thing the Constitution requires is that they open the envelopes. The Constitution doesn't even say they necessarily preside. Um, but what that does, as we saw when Mike Pence did it and before him when Al Gore did it and when Richard Nixon did it in 1960, is that when the party in power loses, it serves as a ceremonial acceptance and affirmation of that fact. Um, so I'm glad that one of the things they didn't change is that the vice president will still be there and making the final official announcement of the results. But obviously, Mike Pence was correct, and so was Dan Quayle and Al Gore and Joe Biden, all the ones who've done it before. Uh, the founders did not intend a system where the vice president alone gets to effectively pick the next president. 
All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Andy Craig, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and recently uh, the new director of election policy at the Rainey Center and Tommy Berry, research fellow at the Cato Institute. And you can continue to read uh, these gentlemen's work on the Electoral Count Act and uh, other issues at our website, cato.org. In 2001, there were only 12 private school choice programs in the country, including vouchers, tax credit scholarships, and personal tax credits and deductions. College prices were rising at crisis rates and calls for free government pre-kindergarten were everywhere. During that same year, the idea to create Cato's Center for Educational Freedom was born, and in 2002, CEF came to life. At the celebration for the center's 20th anniversary, Darcy Olson, the center's first director, spoke with Neil McCluskey, the center's current director, on the broadening diversity of educational options over the last two decades. We'd seen the decline in education in the country and knew what that meant for the future of the country. and. Um, David Bowes at the time uh, was our executive vice president, and he had written a great deal about education reform in the Cato Handbook for Congress and in many other venues. And um, his writing really inspired me, and I saw the vision of where he wanted to take educational freedom. And I remember talking to him about uh, doing more, and he said, Darcy, I'm the executive vice president of the Cato Institute, and I don't have time to run a policy center on education. And so um, we had a conversation, and you know, decided that it was time that we that we do that. And uh, we sought some funding and got some very generous support from an organization uh, that's still out there supporting great causes, the Challenge Foundation. And with that funding, we were able to open the education center, and that was um, the beginning of of all the great work that you've done. Great. When you thought of the center, when it was you know, opened, was it, was it your goal mainly to do K through 12 policy or did you envision it doing a whole lot of different things in education? The biggest priority for us was K-12 education, just because the failures of the education system for those grades was so bleak. We have a pretty strong higher education marketplace in the country. People come from all over the world to go to school here. So it wasn't as desperate. And there's a lot more diversity in early education than, than there is in K-12, or at least there was. It's, of course, gotten so much better. So uh, that was the idea to be the main focus. Um, one of the reasons that I that I left when I did to go to work at the Goldwater Institute was that I wanted to be able to implement some of these policies on the ground. And the Cato Institute, of course, does great theoretical work. And then there are a lot of smaller state organizations that do the implementation. And at that time, I thought that the implementation work was really where it's at. But with with age come a few wrinkles and some wisdom. And I, I would just like to say that there is such a tremendous synergy between the theoretical work on vouchers or savings accounts or pick any number of ways that you might approach school choice, charter schools, and the on-the-ground work in the states. When you are in the states moving policy, and we now in Arizona have the largest school choice program, it's universal anywhere in the country, um, it's 
so wonderful to be able to point to experts here uh, at the Cato Institute and around the country who are writing about these issues on the importance of them, on the small studies that have been done. And likewise, I think the theoretical folks need to be able to point to some on the ground successes. So I think it's not really about what kind of work is better, but just recognizing that those two types of work, the theoretical and the concept that has to go hand in hand with the implementation and that we're a stronger team for it. Mm -hmm. That actually raises an interesting debate that I think we've had within education policy um, and that people often bring up to me and Todd Zwicky is going to talk about this more is uh, people say, well, how can you be for vouchers in K through 12, but not for federal aid in higher education? And I often have to get into a whole discussion of higher ed is bad, but K through 12 is even worse. And so it's interesting that we, uh, that, that, that sort of the thinking of why originally the focus was on K through 12 education. Uh, I do have a very controversial question that probably goes right to the heart of what you were working on at the time. And that continues to be a burning issue in the school choice space, which is, should it be center for educational freedom or education freedom, <laughs> which is a major grammatical question, I think. Uh, I'm just going to say that the freedom word is the most important there uh, and that having all of those options is really uh, game changing. And if I could just give a personal anecdote um, sure. on that. So since I left here, um, I went to the Goldwater Institute. I also became a foster mom. I ended up fostering 10 kids, adopting four. Three of those children have individualized education plans. So they have special learning needs from circumstances of birth. Uh, and I, I don't think I realized how important school choice was until I had kids who who had different ways of thinking. And we have more and more children like that in our country. Um, and uh, it just makes me very grateful, grateful to be in a state where we have all different sorts of options. Um, but it's, um, you know, it isn't, it isn't just the theory of being able to pick what you might like for your children. It's being able to find what that child actually needs to learn. Uh, and when you are a parent or you have one of those kids, this work becomes uh, even more meaningful than, than just the concept of, isn't it important to have these choices in a free country? Of course it is. But it's also, it's also life-changing for children. Mm -hmm. So do you think education policy, especially at the K through 12 level, has gotten a lot better in the last 20 years? Or have we not made enough progress? Such a broad question. I think it depends on on where you are uh, as to whether this has impacted you. But I think we've made incredible gains in this country. I, when we were founding the center 20 years ago, I, I certainly didn't think we would have a universal school choice program anywhere in the country in 20 years. I thought we would continue to eke out tiny model programs, uh, you know, the fight in DC for the voucher program that Casey will talk about was an enormous fight with a lot of resources and, and, and yet, you know, and it still struggled to, to grow despite the need. And I thought that that would be the future of this for a long time. And, uh, just this, just this year, Arizona passed a universal school choice program. And for the average kid, you get about $6,000 and you can take that to any school in the state. So we've got charter schools, purely private schools. We've got the um, 
now we have the tax credits where you, and then we have these you know these cash you get a card with cash on it and you can go anywhere and if you live there um all of the parents know about these programs. The teachers know, the teachers change schools to find the best school for them that fits their philosophy and fits their lifestyle. Um, so I, I think to see a change like that in your lifetime, I think it's, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity and I consider myself very blessed to have been part of this here and to be on the ground there and to have my children be the recipients of of all the hard work of all the people over the years um, who have worked on this, and and we can't we can't have this conversation also without saying thanks to Milton Friedman for you know and what would he think having written on this in the '60s and '70s? So I think he'd be very pleased. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think so? Twenty years ago, you may not have imagined that it was going to turn out right now, at least, to be so successful. And I think. 2021, 2022 have been actually real turning point years, at least so far. Yes. And my father has a saying, it's kind of old school, and he says, you can't see around corners. Mm. And I think that's very true. It's, it's easy to be skeptical. It was easy to see the hard fights. But when you persevere and keep going, um, you learn and you don't know what you don't know. I was not a huge fan of charter schools. I mean, my, my philosophy on charter schools when we founded this center was it's just another version of state-run schools. And sooner or later, they'll be cramped and they won't have the freedom anymore, et cetera, et cetera. What I didn't know is that having a whole bunch of charter schools would get the entire population acclimated to choosing and that once you've chosen a school, you never want to go back to a situation where you don't have a choice anymore uh, and that people would fight to keep the curriculum diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, but you, but you don't, you don't know those things until you walk. So part of, part of an endeavor like this is, is to, to have a vision, but also to have uh, faith uh, a little bit in the unknown and to let things unfold and to let your views evolve uh, as experience uh, uh, proves new things to you. Darcy Olson is the former director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. Neil McCluskey is the current director. The free press is a cornerstone of our republic, and yet media outlets face enormous pressure to toe the party line when it comes to matters of war. In Ted Galen Carpenter's new book, Unreliable Watchdog, news media are taken to task for an almost consistent lack of skepticism toward official government accounts of foreign affairs and official government rationales for going to war. We spoke in November. If you go back to the movie tone news era of journalism, these were the what, what the kids who watch YouTube would say pre-roll news ahead of a uh, film. It was, especially in World War II, rah-rah. It was, go get them, boys. Buy war bonds. And now here's your feature film. Um, how much of that is different today? Unfortunately, uh, there's still that mentality, uh, which bothers me. As one thing, during World War II, when there was an existential crisis for the United States, is something very different when we're engaging in wars of choice, questionable foreign policies, and so on. The news media are supposed to be the public's watchdog to identify 
misconduct on the part of government officials, or just sheer incompetence and questionable policies. Instead, too many journalists have become collaborators with government agencies. We even had situations where we, there were journalists on the payroll of the Central Intelligence Agency or the Defense Department. That's clearly a conflict of interest. That's not being the public's watchdog at all. So your book goes through a lot of different episodes of uh, American foreign policy and how the journalism industry, how news media handled it. Um, you know, let, let's take Vietnam as an example. Vietnam was uh, a disaster for the United States, uh, and it served, as you note in your book, to make journalists relatively more skeptical of um, uh, foreign policy adventurism on, on the part of the U.S. government. But that didn't last. Unfortunately so. Uh, by the end of the 1980s, with the onset of the Persian Gulf crisis in 1990, uh, that skepticism had dissipated markedly. And from that point on, we have too many journalists who really do act as propaganda agents for the federal government, for particular administrations, for the um, bureaucracy within the defense and foreign policy structure. They're not skeptical. They simply repeat uh, propaganda, however um, lacking in credibility that propaganda might be. And we saw that in the lead up to the Iraq war. We saw it in oversimplifying the, the wars in the Balkans in the late 1990s. We certainly have seen it with uh, the deterioration of relations between the United States and Russia, where Russia is being demonized, the Russia-Ukraine war being horribly oversimplified, with Ukraine being portrayed as this model liberal democracy when it's nothing of the sort, and even minimal investigation by journalists would uh, make that very, very clear. So there are always exceptions, but most journalists simply are not doing their job. They're not being professionals. So p part of uh, what you talk about in your book with, with the sort of cozy relationship that exists between uh, especially mass market national news media, which, is, which are the organizations that tend to cover foreign, foreign conflicts or foreign policy, uh, it kind of reminds me of the way a lot of local reporters deal with police. And uh, not just in the way that they simply reprint press releases uh, and often don't ask a lot of questions of, of police, but also they trust that their access to a lot of these uh, folks and, you know, legitimate stories from these folks uh, might be compromised if they don't, at least in some instances or broadly, toe some sort of particular line or don't ask the wrong questions. Your comparison is very much on the mark. And for, for similar reasons, at least that's, that's part of the story. Uh, Journalists want access to high-level officials, to confidential information, uh, to get 
new scoops that their competitors won't get. And the fastest way to do that is to be very friendly to those officials, their institutions, and their missions. If instead you're an iconoclast skeptic, that's a fast way to lose access. And unfortunately, it's also given governmental pressure on publications, on major media companies. A fast way to get marginalized, to uh, find your exposure being diminished dramatically. That happened, for example, to Cheryl Atkinson, who had one time had been the leading uh, reporter appearing on the CBS Evening News. But when she investigated uh, Operation Fast and Furious, the Obama administration's less than brilliant scheme to traffic uh, firearms to Mexican drug cartels, supposedly we would be tracing them all and would be able to roll up those cartels when she demonstrated how misguided that policy was, how badly it failed. Uh, pressure came from the government on CBS to begin to downplay her, and she lost time on uh, the network news, eventually was edged out. That is a typical example of what happens to iconoclasts, to critics. And it's especially true with regard to foreign policy and national security issues. It happens with some domestic issues too, but much more prevalent with regard to defense and foreign policy. Matters. What do you think explains that? What explains the, uh, the fact that in, in this particular area of endeavor, it is vastly more difficult for national media outlets to present a reasonably skeptical uh, presentation of information. For example, when the government wants to go to war, uh, at least television news networks, they, fall, they seem to fall in line very quickly. And by that, I mean they immediately switch from this is no longer the debate is over. They, they say mm -hmm. this is where we're headed. These are the systems. These are the military systems that will be used uh, to have pictures of missiles. This is what the, the military is going to be making use of when they go to war, for example, in Iraq. And it, it, it's, it's almost as if the, the, whatever skepticism might have existed just simply evaporates. Part of that is a false patriotism or at least an exaggerated patriotism. Part of it is institutional. Uh, wars are good for ratings, and particularly if the United States is directly involved. Uh, people will be watching the news on uh, almost all types of media outlets. So there's a career incentive. There is an institutional incentive to do this. And there's also a mentality uh, people have been marinated. Most of the top journalists have been marinated in activist foreign policy propaganda, if you will, at their educational institutions and almost uh, from their entire backgrounds. That kind of skepticism with regard to America's mission in the world and the beneficial effects of U.S. intervention around the world, that 
is not usually a subject for deep consideration or for debate. So they come in viewing events from the perspective that the United States can and should do something about any bad thing that is happening somewhere in the world. And once that propaganda machine really gets going, there are very few journalists who are willing to defy it, that are willing to present more skeptical points of view. And again, at the career risk, uh, there isn't much incentive to do that. Matt Taibbi is a writer that I have followed for uh, uh, many years, uh, even when I have uh, disagreements with some of his writings, when he's talking about how government functions broadly uh, and how media his media criticism is often uh, very good. And, and one of the no things that you note in your book is that this is not this is something he has pointed out that the left wing media, the 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 to the extent that there is an establishment left wing media, even they uh, fall into what I think you would say is a trap of supporting military interventions, just not for the same reasons that more prominent national media would. Policymakers understand that they need to provide different messages to different parts of the political spectrum, if you will. When you're trying to gain support from left-of-center people, you emphasize the humanitarian aspects. People are suffering. Therefore, the United States has an obligation to try to do something about that. And we have the ability to do something about that. There, there's this level of hubris with respect to that. With right-wing types, um, hyping the security threat is usually a much more effective message to gain support. But the officials are very, very adept at using both messages. The so-called anti-war left has almost disappeared at this point. All that is needed for officials to do is to highlight a humanitarian motive for U.S. political or military intervention. And the vast majority of the left is on board immediately. We certainly see that with the war in Ukraine right now, where even the uh, so-called progressive caucus in the House of Representatives sent an open letter to President Biden uh, advocating a greater reliance on diplomacy. It was a very tepid letter, really. And the pressure was on from media and others to rescind that, and the Progressive Caucus did so in less than 48 hours. That's kind of the impact that um, this culture of intervention has had on the journalistic community and others. So this is a real problem going forward to get the message to the American people that we need to be skeptical about all of these justifications, especially since officials in multiple administrations have lied to Congress and the American people about multiple uh, interventions. We had military and civilian officials telling Congress and the American people and their version of events circulated by the news media that we were making great progress in Afghanistan. Well, that was 
absolutely untrue. But most people didn't realize that until the rather sudden collapse of the Afghan client government that we were supporting and the chaotic U.S. military withdrawal. Now, if journalists had been more skeptical all along, I don't think that would have come as a surprise. They would have been featuring people who were arguing that this mission was failing, it was unnecessary, years before. And I think maybe we would have then had a constructive policy debate long, long before the debacle in 2021. Now, to be fair, the Washington Post did an extensive uh, accounting of uh, the failures uh, in Afghanistan and the failures of the Pentagon to accurately report uh, the, the fact that you know, what did they say? We we're turning a corner, we're turning a corner, we're turning a corner to make a dodecahedron. Um, but the 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 idea that um I think you're expressing is that this was uh they were late to the party in the sense of expressing any kind of skepticism about Afghanistan. They were not only late to the party, it was a very interesting development in that. Most of the other news stories and opinion pieces in the Washington Post ignored that study. And same thing with the New York Times and other uh, competition in the news media. What should have been a blockbuster story and something that received massive attention throughout the news media barely made a ripple. And that, again, suggests just how entrenched the pro-activist, pro-interventionist mentality is within the journalistic community. So, uh, you know, if, if Matt Taibbi is right, if you are right, uh, it, this is not something that can be couched in ideology necessarily. That is, there are always forces that want to go to war, uh, whether they be nominally right or left. And uh, just a general skepticism toward government would be more justified based upon what we know about how government works, and particularly in the foreign policy sphere. I'm thinking of, uh, at, at the very least, the most iconic moment I could think of is the case of Pat Tillman in Afghanistan, who was killed, venerated after he had been killed, and then it only comes out much later that he had been killed by U.S. forces accidentally. Uh, but but this doesn't seem to be an ideological thing. It's partly ideological, but again, there is this uh, almost cultural phenomenon. The great confidence in America's ability to manipulate events around the world, to intervene in a variety of ways and make the world a better place. That seems to have than a mentality that has become ever stronger. And what is the most perverse is the unwillingness of the news media and policymakers to honestly acknowledge the mistakes that were clearly made. Libya is a disaster after the Obama administration's air war against that country to remove 
Muammar Gaddafi from power. There's no question about it. It is a totally chaotic mess with thousands and thousands of people dying and more than a million made refugees. And yet one sees almost nothing about this in the, uh, in the mainstream media. Very little attention. No one seems to pay much attention anymore to what's going on in Syria. Uh, that is a stalemate. But the U.S. helped destabilize that situation in an effort to try to oust uh, the, the uh, Syrian leader because he was pro-Iranian and pro-Russian. That place has been a total uh, debacle with more than 500,000 people dead and several million that were made refugees. And this refugee flow has caused tremendous problems for America's allies in Europe. This is not something that uh, was easily absorbed. And the U.S. is at the root of that entire problem with its destabilizing wars in the Middle East. Yet, the news media pay very little attention to those events once it's uh, a war is not the the uh, favorite cause of the moment. They just move on. Nobody talks much about Syria anymore. We're on to Russia and Ukraine. Is there any sense from your uh, in in your book? Do you get it? Do you express any sense that there is any effort to uh, understand better the failures of uh, U.S. news media when it comes to covering foreign policy or war? There's not much self-reflection going on in the news media. There was a bit after the start of the Iraq war, and it was quite clear that the American people and Congress had been led, in, led to support the drive to war against Saddam Hussein based on a total lie that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction in a large arsenal. Um, and there was acknowledgments, even in places like the New York Times, that we got this wrong. But that seems to be the exception to the rule. It did not last any more than the skepticism following the disaster in Vietnam lasted very long. Uh, if you take a look at the New York Times coverage and the coverage of other media, major media outlets about the war in Ukraine, I mean, this is just an echo of the kind of simplistic pro-government propaganda that they were putting out with regard to these earlier episodes in Iraq, in Syria, Libya, and so on. Ted Galen Carpenter is author of Unreliable Watchdog, available now at Cato.org. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss in this exclusive segment of Cato Audio, you can send us a note to CatoAudio at Cato.org. It's the stocking stuffer that hasn't gone out of style in 200 years. The Cato Institute's pocket constitution containing both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States helps citizens young and old gain a better understanding and appreciation 
of their own individual rights and the principles of government that are set forth in America's founding documents. With over 7 million copies in print, it has been held up by senators at press conferences and by representatives during floor debate, found in federal judicial chambers across the country, and it also makes a great gift for friends and family alike by yours today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next year. <laughs>